This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello hikers, Bird Shooter here, and tonight we continue our conversation with Brian Snyder. He joined us in the previous episode to talk about his travels, but I wanted to have a separate discussion with him tonight on his book, Renegade Car Camping. In the show, we talk in detail about how to find free campsites while you're on the road, Uh, plus he tells us how to leverage some resources like public libraries, couchsurfing.com, and soak.net to maximize the experience and save some money in the process. Uh, I took two summer long journeys across North America myself, which you can hear about by clicking to the N2 Backpacking website. Just look for episodes number 14 and 15. And if those shows inspire you to do a transcontinental or even a short road trip, you are in luck because Brian is gonna give you some great advice tonight. Before the show, I wanna give a quick shout out to the country of Japan. They have vaulted to the top five countries for downloads in the last few months. Traditionally, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and of course the US have had the most downloads. Uh, But Japan rocketed into the number three spot overall and took the number two spot for October just behind the United States. So thank you to our Japanese listeners and welcome to the podcast. Also a quick nod to the Teton Hammock Company. They helped support the show recently. And you can learn more about their hammocks at tetonhammocks.com. And now, episode number 46. All right, this is Bird Shooter. I'd like to welcome back Brian Snyder to the show. If you haven't listened to episode number 45, I highly recommend that you go back and check it out because it tees up the conversation perfectly for one of my favorite books that Brian has written, Renegade Car Camping which is a blueprint for exploring North America on the cheap. Brian, once again, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be back. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's been so long since we've talked. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's unbelievable. All right. Um, Hey, so I guess now that I think about it, I I know we talked in the last podcast that you were from, um, well, you're currently living in California, but I don't know if you really gave us sort of your backstory, where you're from, how you got to Cali, do you want to give us some uh, quick uh, backstory on yourself? Hey, sure thing. Uh, well, I grew up in, uh, in upstate New York, so a very rural part of the country there. And it was, a, I guess, a great place to, uh, to learn how to explore because everybody's backyard, like, kind of uh, connected to uh, usually these forests, which were very ambiguous. You never, never were sure who owned it, whether it was private or state land. Um, but yeah, you'd be able to explore these forests where you'd find like ruined walls and ruined foundations of people that tried to <laughs> try to uh, to make a living hundreds of years ago, but failed. So uh, a great place to grow up, and I stumbled across the career of being an environmental educator. So I learned about these outdoor science schools that are uh, around the country, where you know kids will go for a couple of days and they stay overnight. So it's kind of like a summer camp in a way, but uh, it happens during the school year and. I would uh, take kids hiking, teach them, you know, geology and astronomy and all these natural sciences. 
Um, and these jobs kind of tended to give you housing. So like I was, it was very easy for me to like to, to pick up and like, uh, work at one season, like in Colorado and one season, in Indiana and gradually work my, gradually work my way out West, uh, to California. But, you know, as kids, we all like to explore in the backcountry. And one of the things that fascinated me most about, um, you know, just reading about your, uh, interest in the outdoors is how you found a burned out cabin and you rebuilt it. Can you, can you tell us more about that experience? Hey, sure. Yeah. Well, once I, I, I made it to California, um, and, uh, I, California is not a place where people who work in my career can really afford to buy a house. It's, it's really tough. Um, housing is so expensive here, but I had a friend that, that I worked with before and he had moved to Montana and he had managed to buy a house for $4,000. Double. Wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, I heard about this and I had to figure it, had to, had to figure it out. So this is the summer where, um, uh, the summer where I went to uh, Africa. So just before I went to Africa, actually, I left Canada, went to visit my friend there, and I bought a house myself. In fact, I bought two houses there. And uh, I bought two, for, two houses for $30,000. And the reason why it's, it was so cheap was, um, in the last podcast, we talked about Butte, Montana, and how like, their main industry was these, these copper mines. So when people would mine the copper in Butte, they take it by rail and ship it to this town of Anaconda, about uh, you know twenty miles to the west, because Anaconda had a, a water source, and that's where they kind of crushed the ore and turned it into usable copper. They smelted it, and so that was their main industry until 1980 when the copper smelter shut down. So you ended up having a town where the main industry disappeared, and so suddenly there was a kind of a glut of housing. And that's why uh, the houses are so cheap there. There's, they still are, even though it's an incredibly beautiful area. It has a wilderness area um, called the Pintler Mountains just outside of town. And it's four hours away from Glacier, and it's three hours away from Yellowstone. So I saw this area, and uh, within a week, I had located uh, two little houses that I wanted to <laughs> I take on as a project. And it was kind of like a buy one, get one free situation. <laughs> the, uh, a BOGO. Uh, yes. Uh, now the one I got for free was, uh, the extra one. It had a fire a couple years before I bought it. Cause there was this guy, 80 year old guy named Harry Hill. Uh, a friend had bought him some cigars. And so he was sitting on his, on his sofa with his oxygen tank, smoking some cigars oh, yeah. and, can, and he fell, he fell asleep. That can happen to anyone. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Cigar caught some newspapers, which caught some curtains, and he woke up and he tried to put it out, but he couldn't do it. He managed to get out of the house, but by and, and soon after that, the fire reached his oxygen tank. And oh, just explo- Yes. So the explosion blew a little bit of a hole in the roof, and uh, the place was just boarded up for a couple years before I bought it. So... Uh, I couldn't really afford to have people do repairs for me, so I had to gradually, you know, slowly teach myself how to do electrical work, how to do plumbing, how to do roofing, and so it's been an ongoing project. Uh, <laughs> wow, awesome! So now, yeah, I, I take it you have since sold those properties and uh, uh, no longer own them, or do you still own them? I still own one as a rental. Oh, like the, okay. The first summer I fixed up one as a rental, but the other one I really want to do have as a base camp um, for myself just to be able to be close to Glacier National Park and, and, and Yellowstone. Yeah, great decision. And you're not far from the um, 
the Tetons. You're also close to Big Sky if you like to ski. So uh, I, I yeah. fully appreciate. And actually, you're not far from some great hiking in Idaho, too, if I recall. Yeah, the Sawtooths are an area that's very distinctive. I love that place. Uh, the Tetons are fantastic. I, I was lucky to be able to see the eclipse from the top of the middle Teton a couple weeks ago. I fully support your decision to keep that cabin, Brian. I just, I just, <laughs> just want to say. So, hey, yeah. let, let's talk about, and we talked about in our last podcast, um, your recent book, which is, uh, if, if any of the listeners want to go back and listen to it, Falling Off the Map, 54 Explorations in the Wildest Reaches of the American West. But uh, one of my personal favorite books that you have Maybe this comes from uh, a couple cross-country ventures that I did, and I really, really appreciated the advice you gave in there, was Renegade Car Camping. Um, so let me ask you maybe to just do a quick synopsis of the book, and then what inspired you to write it? Well, the book Renegade Car Camping basically is an overview of how much public land we have in the United States. We're just hugely lucky to have this incredible public resource. So it goes over the different types of public lands, whether it's national forests, BLM, uh, national wildlife refuges, things like that. Um, it shows you the more out-of-the-way places that you could also find uh, campsites, places you can camp for free, like uh, by like underneath uh, cell towers or up by water towers um, on abandoned bridges, places like that. And it, it goes over like all the basically all the tricks that I know that allow you to have like a comfortable campsite, even though even if you're camping night after night after night and that you don't have access to amenities. So it's how to be comfortable out there and uh, all the kind of resources that are also at your disposable, your disposal that you can kind of link to to, uh, to uh, make the whole experience pleasurable, manageable, and uh, uh, adventurous. I bet. That's a great summary. Let, let me ask this question. One thing I didn't even think about uh, when I was reading the book until now, but... You know, Canada obviously has a, a ton of land as well, and we do have a fair number of listeners from Canada. Um, is is there? I mean, is renegade car camping as easy in Canada as it is, is in the United States, especially the Western? I got to believe the Eastern is a completely different animal. <laughs> I I've done it a little a little bit. I know uh, personally trying to find renegade campsites close to a Banff National Park. Because uh, that's a huge destination, Banff in Alberta, oh, the province of Alberta. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. place. Um, yeah, that's that's that was a bit tricky trying to camp around those more popular areas. But then again, in the, in the United States, uh, also near our most popular national parks, finding the renegade campsites can also be a bit tricky. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Wait, so let's talk about Canada for a second. You and I touched on this very early in our discussions, um, and that is an area in Ontario that you and I have both been to, Killarney. Um, yeah. So I go up there fishing every year. I have I own property up there with some other people, and um, yeah. I've been going there since I was a, a young kid. Probably 1976 was my first year. So uh, love that area passionately. Um, just curious, I know you had a chance to explore it um, the Indians have done some creative things with canoe trails up there, which would be fun to participate in in the future. But um, what what got you to Killarney, actually, Ontario, and uh, what did you think of it? Ah, well, I just had a um, 
<laughs> it was one summer where I traveled a lot. I traveled from the west to the uh, the east coast to uh, visit a girlfriend at the time, and instead of heading back across the Midwest of the United States, I decided to I would kind of trace along the southern edge of Canada, and I I te- I really try to seek out like unique geologic landscapes, and one thing Ontario has in that corner, yeah, that Killarney National Provincial Park. Yes. Uh, yes. You said it Is right. There, yeah, it has these outcroppings of a, of a rock called quartzite, which is a little bit, a little bit like a, a marble. It's a, a rock that you know has been fused by pressure, so it's all the crystal facets are very fragmented. So it looks very glittery, you might say, and very white. It's a very kind of a whitish, uh, bright colored landscape, and it was just yeah, cool to uh, be able to explore those areas. There's some cool trails that lead through there as though as though as i remember um i found like in this national park i don't know that this is a canadian thing but there are so many uh rock cairns and just rock sculptures that people kind of created yeah which uh, yeah in, in, the, in the u.s when you see like a rock cairn usually that means like okay you're on the right trail and in in this national park <laughs> these these rock cairns and rock towers were just like people having a good time. It's like seems like a national pastime to create these little um, rock towers, which are unfortunately a little bit misleading. When you're trying to follow the right trail, you just see these guys scattered everywhere, and then you have absolutely no idea where you're supposed to go. <laughs> I've actually seen them on some of the roads up there. They'll put them on just you know the small little two lane roads. Though you'll see them on there. It tells, yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, one of my favorite areas. Now I know your book is probably more geared to North America. Um, very, very yes. curious to ask you, what what is your favorite public lands? We've got BLM, we've got national forests, we've got I mean state parks, right? Well, that's not really national lands. What public lands? A public. Um, yeah. What else we got in there? We got wilderness areas. Do you have a favorite? Uh, probably the national forest lands, uh, because they tend to be in areas of like greater topography, like there's greater ups and greater downs. And so in those lands, you can find like streamside campsites and you can find, uh, um, like high peak campsites. Uh, if there's national, if there's forest service roads that take you up to ridgelines, you can have a tremendous view at, at your campsite or, you know, if you need water, you can head to the lowlands. And that's uh, and that's kind of like a different, a little bit different from BLM lands. Uh, BLM, BLM, BLM stands for Bureau of Land Management. So all the federal lands that were not really deemed valuable enough to be um, designated a national forest or a national park or a wildlife refuge or recreation area, all the leftover part pieces are were just sort of given over to the the BLM to manage. So our government manages them for us, and they just kind of tend to be a lot of sagebrush areas or like deserty areas, um, some forests, but mostly just wide open spaces. I got the impression from your your book that they were the easiest ones to find free camping in. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that's 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 probably definitely true. Um, sometimes the harder to hardest ones to find like a comfortable spot to camp. Like um, you can. Uh, in BLM lands, you can drive down some dirt road. You can find a spot in the sagebrush to uh, um, to camp at. So it's kind of easy, but it's you know sagebrush gets a little bit old after a while. <laughs> now, now um, is, it, is it fair to say they're probably the most remote and the least visited of the public lands? Uh, 
Yeah, probably. Uh, they tend to be kind of, again, wide open spaces. And they can actually be, you can find some fantastic cool areas. Like in Utah, uh, a lot of these, the Canyonlands and these great, uh, all these areas that have like these hoodoo towers and beautiful red sandstone. I and mean, that could be also managed by the BLM. So you can get some great Canyonland um, uh, topography uh to explore. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I totally agree with that statement. But which actually it brings me to a question, though, because, you know, one thing, and I know you do backpacking, which this is, you know, a lot of people that listen to this are hikers and backpackers. Yeah. Um, so I know you are in the backcountry, but you do spend a lot of time in the front country, too. Although, when you're on BLM land, it's, you're not really in the front country. You're still pretty out there. You're pretty remote. Um do you, do you I mean, what do you do for protection? Protection like from humans or animals or uh, I mean probably humans. <laughs> humans are probably more relevant, right? I mean so here's the question people always used yeah. to ask me when I threw hiked. Are you carrying a gun? I heard that so many times it drove me crazy. Uh, <laughs> and I I hate to ask you the question but you know, people want to know like do you, do you carry a weapon when you're in the middle of nowhere like that? I don't usually get the gun question, but I do get the bear spray question a, a whole lot, oh, yeah. um, especially when back, backpacking. And uh, in fact, I actually I finally found the one that somebody had left behind. So I have one that I keep in my in my Jeep, but I, I never take it with me backpacking. And I, partially that's maybe I have some residual like muscle memory because the one the first time I, I went hiking um, with a bear spray, I was in Glacier National Park. And I left the trail to, you know, use the, you know, the answer the call of nature. And when I hopped back onto the trail again, and my, when I hopped down, my hand hit the trigger of the bear spray when it was attached to my hip, and a shot of pepper just shot straight up my nose. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. And I, no, I spent like the next half an hour like with my head upside down underneath the waterfall, <laughs> just like flushing the whole system out. Oh man. Um, but I'll hike in grizzly country, and you know I I leave the bear spray behind. And now this is not the the right move for everybody. Absolutely, um, I just personally I like I like kind of being vulnerable. Like I don't I don't always want to be completely safe out there. I, I want to feel like I mean if I if I'm a little bit vulnerable, that makes my my senses have to be that much more aware. I can't be. Um, I can't be just goofing off of my in my head. I have to be a little bit focused on what I'm doing, and so I I, I like the experience of, you know, knowing I might be part of the food, <laughs> the food chain. I mean, it's it that sounds it might sound gruesome, but uh, uh, I feel it's a, it's a it's a good trade off. Like as a, um, it just I I like being kind of con- more. It makes me just feel more connected to what's out there. No, well, it makes you focus, and there's something to be said for that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You've been doing this for about 20 years plus. Um, you've gone into some really remote areas. Have you had any experiences that really scared you other than weather? I fully appreciate you're on a ridge. <laughs> we talked about this last last podcast, lightning, everything yeah. else. You've yeah. never had any uh, weirdos kind of roll into a campsite or a giant brown bear come after you or anything else? <laughs> I've had some bears come kind of sniffing around uh sniffing around the campsite from time to time but uh and I don't know weirdos 
it's, that's kind of all that's all relative i mean like i sometimes I'm, i think of myself as the biggest weirdo out there because uh <laughs> you know um not everybody would go out and kind of just travel for a couple months at the, at the time at a time but uh I've, i really haven't had any bad experiences with humans apart from one time i was kind of camped out near pinedale uh, wyoming and i left my I don't usually do this, but I left my tent behind in the National Forest while I traveled to town to use the library. Unfortunately, I'd chosen to do this on homecoming weekend. <laughs> and so the whole National Forest was like uh, like peppered with uh, teenagers that were, uh, uh, you know, experiencing freedom, you know, letting themselves experience freedom and alcohol and and bad decisions were made. And so when I got back to my campsite, like, uh, everything was gone. My tent, my camping stove, all my pillows, sleeping bags, and comforters. I, 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 you know, I vividly remember that from your book. You were dealing with inebriated high school kids, not really weirdos, though. <laughs> yes. Which I guess is a good thing, except for you lost a lot of your stuff. I mean, that that must have been pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, but it, you know, it all balances out. Like on the on the way out of town, I picked up a hitchhiker who needed to go to Jackson, Wyoming, which is a very expensive place to uh, to stay if you're actually trying to stay at a campground or a hotel. And, oh yeah. And he let me. Uh, he just needed to be there for an afternoon, and so he let me stay in his house for three days while I explored the Tetons. Oh so. wow! What a score! Nice. <laughs> yeah, that was tremendous. That's awesome. So, do you have like a you know from all your travels, like one of your funniest? experiences out there uh, well i could say like a <laughs> one time uh, hiking down to the bottom of the grand canyon and reached the very bottom <laughs> climbed to the very top again all in one day and i thought like i was a big tough guy but the whole way up i actually had a huge giant tear in, tear in the back of my pants oh uh, but uh i don't know a funny story was about two summers ago i was it was a time when i wasn't alone i was actually part helping to lead a group of teenagers to uh um, on a trip to Point Reyes National National Seashore. Yeah, I've been there. It's beautiful. That's a oh, really yeah. pretty place. It's a point right on the ocean, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And when it was created, there was some kind of compromise made between like environmentalists and the farmers and ranchers that that live there. So, uh, ranching is still an allowed activity there. So there's uh, plenty of cows still on the land, and uh, we took some. Uh, some ki- uh, kayaks across the uh, and canoes across the uh, across the uh, the Tamales Bay, and we camped out on this beach on the far shore. And we were that night we we're going to go out to see uh, to see the bioluminescent algae out there in the water. Yeah, cool. So we're looking looking forward to that experience. Uh, it was get we're waiting for it to get dark, and once it got dark, uh, we were almost ready to go. And we had one other group that was out there on the beach. They were kind of down along the, further along the beach, and they had built a campfire. And we noticed these weird shapes that were, like, circling around their campfire, you know, just these weird inhuman shapes. And, you know, uh, man, we were thinking, like, demons or something. And it was just we couldn't figure out what it out. And then we suddenly realized that they were, they were cows. Like, <laughs> some, somehow these cows, a uh, herd of cows had broken through a fence, and... Uh, and uh, invaded their campsite, and we went over to check it out. And there was actually a bull. Two, there were two bulls of this group, and the campers there were like a little bit uh, trepidatious because uh, they're worried about their tents getting trampled by this group of cows. And eventually, the cows got brave enough. They actually went through their campsite and uh, 
And uh, they seemed like they tried. They went to uh, a fence nearby, and they started uh, the bulls. Uh, it looked like they were trying to communicate with the cows in the neighboring pasture, um, as if they were going to kind of team up and then kind of expand their empire to take over the entire beach. Um, so uh, we went back to our campsite, and our neighbors, our camp, our neighboring camps, campers, they eventually came over and like were like, "Can we hang out at your campsite?" So, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, we kind of like watched the cows from a distance until they started st- they started sending some scouts. Like the cows started sending some scouts in our direction, and uh, they started <laughs> getting scouts. close to our yeah. Awesome. Started, started getting close to our campfire, and then finally our leader was like, "All right, that uh, that that's enough." And so she started clapping her hands and started making noise, and we uh, everybody like the rest of us were like, "All right, it's on." So. We became a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls, and we just herded this, all this this huge uh, herd um, across the beach. You know, got them out. Of, you know, bulls or no bulls, we got them out of our neighbor's campsite, and we just pushed them further. And we were trying to push them into like try to find whatever gate they came through. And so we pushed them back, pushed them back until they kind of got cornered and they wouldn't go any further. And that's when we realized that I oh, probably should not be you know like backing a couple bulls into a corner. <laughs> You, you you weren't going to try any cow tipping at that point, were you? Uh, oh no, no. These these were these were soldiers. Um, <laughs> so that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Wait, um, now this was this was a state park, or this was a uh, like a city park, or where, where was it? National forest land. This was technically the the national sea, national seashore. Oh, so it's uh, national land. Okay, gotcha. Yes, gotcha. Now, so state parks. What's your vibe on state parks? Because my experience in the East Coast, and it may be very different in the West Coast, but um, they usually have a lot of rules. They're expensive. Um, they're generally really nice, which, you know, is because they use the money appropriately. But um, what, I mean, what, what's your take on state parks? Uh, they're yeah, as you said, they've got great they got great infrastructure, but uh, because it's state owned, you know, unlike the federal government, federal governments can can run a deficit, and you've got many departments to 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 float, you know, to scoop money between. Uh, you know, state governments they can't run a deficit every year, so they when they uh, charge for campsites, they're they can be charging like thirty five bucks a night for for a campsite. Whereas, like um, you know, campsites on BLM land or um, or national forest land or national parks, they can be much more reasonable. In some cases, their campgrounds can be free, you know, in, on BLM land or in the national forests. Yeah, one one of the things you had in your book that I loved and I really never thought about um, was the dams and the reservoirs and why they were such a great resource for free camping. Do you do you want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, part of the process of, of building a dam somewhere is usually you have to um, build also at the same time build facilities for recreation. And uh, so around reservoirs, you'll typically find like picnic tables, campsites, um, and they can be uh, paid campsites, but you'll you have a high proportion of free campsites around some of these areas. Yeah, and one of, one of the things you mentioned too is the um, the scenery, right? Like the swimming and the scenery. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, around reservoirs, sometimes this, it's because it's a man-made lake. Sometimes the scenery is, is not not the greatest. I mean, you can have some great uh, sunsets around around reservoirs, but they're very valuable for just being able to go for a swim before you go to bed at night. That is the invaluable part about uh, reservoirs. Yeah, but in your book, you basically point to the national forest as having the most epic sites, which um, 
I'd, I'd love to get your feedback on that because that's probably where I've done most of my backcountry camping. But um, can, can can you comment on that versus the state and the and the reservoirs? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, on the on the on a map, you know, you pull your road map there, you'll find this this just a big giant uh, areas of national forest. And so, you know, when you're driving along, you'll just head up some kind of uh, road that goes to the national forest, and then you, you just point your jeep, point your vehicle uphill, and then you just go through a maze of forest service roads. Like a lot of these uh, roads were were created originally to for to enable logging loggers to get into these certain areas. Yeah, I, I just usually hit up one of these roads and follow them to their end. And a lot of times, where they end, you'll along the way you'll find our previously used campsites, like spaces within the forest where people have created a fire ring, and um, there's maybe some stumps around, some fallen logs people have used for benches, and uh, you know, trees are usually along the sides of mountains. Uh, um, if the trees have been cleared enough in, in enough areas, you know, you can find tremendous views. Yeah. Well, when when you're camping in national forests, though, you're typically not in the pay sites, right? You're probably going down the dirt road and finding a pull-off site. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, exactly. I uh, I t- <laughs> I make it a point to never pay for camping in the summertime, unless you know the way gas money is these days. When you're around like a big national park, um, a lot of times to to actually drive out of the park and drive away so you can find a dispersed campsite. Um, you're going to use up more gas money than you would if you just actually stayed put um, and paid for a campsite. Um, so that that's the one case where I'll I'll stick around the national park and actually pay a few bucks for to stay there. So speaking of gas money, one of the things that um, I didn't even think about is you know because you have a car with you a lot of times on these renegade car camping sites, but you would actually do some hitchhiking. So that kind of surprised me when I was reading your book. I'm like, wow, I never thought about the fact that you would need to hitchhike, but that was mainly because you were doing hiking and backpacking trails and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. When you're backpacking, if you don't want to do a loop, uh, then once you you head in one way, you park your Jeep, head in one way, and then when you come out, you got to find a way to get back to your own vehicle. So, um, so yeah, uh, I've hitchhiked uh, in the Rockies and in the Northeast a little bit before, but most of my hitchhiking has been when I've traveled abroad. Um, you know, places like Norway or Iceland or New Zealand. Uh, uh, hitchhiking is a great place to, you know, again, meet people. And uh, and if you use it in conjunction with, uh, with couch surfing, um, it's a great way to travel on the cheap while you're out there. So, Brian, let's be honest, because I, I got to tell you, when I first started through hiking, I wasn't totally comfortable with hitchhiking. And I know, yeah, it's kind of, you know, if you haven't done it, it takes a little while to get used to. Yeah. Um, did you ever have any experiences that uh, you know spooked you a little bit, or for the most part, everything's been good on that? Uh, with the characters I've met, no, nobody's really spooked me. Um, I'd say the most off person I met was I was trying to hitch from Edinburgh, Scotland, down to London in a day, and uh, I got picked up by a. Actually, this is this is probably my very first experience hitchhiking, um, and I got picked up by a trucker who was. Like he was, he was like Bill Murray in the 1980s. He was a wild character that played house music like at full blast the entire way, and he would just be like cackling and laughing at the police as he was like as he was driving above the speed <laughs> a certain number of, of uh, kilometers above the speed limits as we headed south. So uh, he might have been a little bit off, but 
I, as far as scary goes, the, the scariest hitchhiking experience I had was in Norway, where I was picked up by um, a young lady, and she took me to this hotel in the middle of nowhere. And this hotel was just like the. Sh- it, it reminded me immediately of The Shining, um, <laughs> the movie The Shining, because it's a mountain hotel in the middle of nowhere, and it was completely vacant. Um, it had been recently purchased by, uh, you know, a developer that wanted to kind of clean the place out and make condos out of it or something. But uh, <clears throat> the hotel was weirdly. It, it, it was weirdly vacant because you'd walk through it and it looked like. Everybody like, like had just suddenly got up and left in the middle of a normal day at the hotel, because there were like plates with like like there were plates and, and tables were set up and there were offices where people had their stuff laid out, and it's just like everybody vanished. It was kind of weird. <laughs> and and while I was we were there, these just weird things started happening. Like um, um, like uh, at this uh this uh. There was only about like four or five of us there, um, me and a couple basically workers that were working on kind of gutting the place and getting it ready for uh, development. And in the middle of the night, uh, um, this guy was just sitting by a, um, by a window and the whole window frame just like pushed out and just crashed on his head. Um, and luckily he had, he had dreadlocks, so which kind of like cushioned his head a little bit, but he still got a really bad gash and we had to take him to a, a clinic in the middle of the night. And while we were away, like another uh, um, of the workers there just woke up covered with blood. And it was, <laughs> which sounds uh, terrible, but he is, his nose had started bleeding while he was asleep and he just didn't know about it. And so his entire bed was soaked with blood um, when he got up. Um, and the next day, uh, to creep us out further, we actually did watch The Shining. We, we got the movie out. We actually watched <laughs> oh, it while we were there. How can you not? At um, that point, how can you not? Yeah. Um, and as I was leaving the building, like the next uh, the next day, as I was walking out of the hallway, an entire bookcase just like tipped over and fell on to another one of my hosts. Um, so it's a, a very strange and very spooky place, uh, which is probably haunted. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I wonder how it's how it's turned out. How the uh, the residents of this new condo have fared in the, the remaining in the intervening years. So I was guessing that your most interesting hitchhiking experiences were in the U.S., but I, I never it never occurred to me that they were all overseas. So uh, didn't see that coming. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, once you afford your plane ticket, if you're uh, if you're just like camping and couch surfing and hitchhiking, you can you can be, it can be really cheap traveling abroad. Yeah, really. Well, hey, so speaking of ghosts and abandoned things, uh, you talk a lot about abandoned bridges and abandoned roads. T- tell us about why they're a great resource for uh, renegade car camping. Yeah, they could be a great place to camp because they're flat, for one thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of roads used to be, like, super windy and they wound through canyons, but eventually people, like, bull- like uh, blasted tunnels through these mountains. And when they blast a tunnel through the mountain, the old road you know usually gets closed off, and so they can be a uh, yeah a great space to have a um, a very a very flat uh, area to pitch a tent. You've never had an experience where you know you thought the road was closed and the car comes rolling up. <laughs> nope, never had that experience. But uh, the trick with those places is you know you can't because uh, you're on a on a road you can't really uh, uh, hammer a stake down. And sometimes rocks are also a little bit hard to find. 
So, uh, like, on one abandoned bridge where I was at, uh, it was like this great, nice, mossy bridge. And they're, they're, they're very pleasant because you got the sound of water right underneath you. But because it started raining, I needed to put, pitch my rainfly, and yet I didn't have a way to, to stake out the rainfly. So I had to find a – I just grabbed a bunch of branches and tied the branches to the guy lines of my rainfly. And I threw them off both – like took a branch and tied it and then threw it off one side of the bridge, took another branch, tied it to a guy line and threw it off the other side of the bridge. And so these branches were just hanging down halfway above the water, but the tension on them just kept my uh, rainfly perfectly taut. <laughs> well, that's, that's backcountry ingenuity. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so another thing in your book that I loved was the power lines, cell towers, and water towers. Now, I understand that you had the chance that, uh, you know, the uh, college or the high school kid will come and party there. But do you want, yeah. you, want to, you want to talk about that option? Yeah, not too much to say about those places, but they're just like another alternative. If, you're, if you are near a town and you're kind of stuck for a place to go, um, you know, look, look up at the hills above you. And there's just a water tower or some uh, power lines there. Power lines are interesting because, you know, you, you're camping there and you're hearing the crackling of electricity going across the wires above you because they're, they're usually the, the very high voltage wires. And so you might wonder about what this, the electric magnetic fields are kind of doing to your body's internal chemistry. <laughs> With good reason. Um, yeah. And so you, you sort of rationalize that. All right, it's going to be one night. I'm gonna, probably going to be okay. I hope I don't get cancer. Um, so you definitely don't want to camp there too often. Um, but, and I remember from your book, do not camp there on a weekend, right? Uh, yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that, that, that's that's a, a, well, unless you want a very social event, probably. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard of you. Yeah. You said you mentioned you had some interesting times with some teenagers uh, camping out before. We, uh, we, we have. Yes. <laughs> to, to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to steal your interview. But uh, yes, uh, I have definitely had those moments. So that 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 definitely struck a chord with me, for sure. Yeah. Um, what what about uh, what about small towns? Have you ever camped in little small town parks? Uh yes, yeah. Uh, I, there's a book I've relied on a long time. Um, one, it's written by Don Wright. It's called The Guide to Free Campgrounds. Um, but it also includes campgrounds like twelve dollars and under. Um, I wish it was a shorter book that just just had free campgrounds, but I've used it a lot, and it's not 100% reliable. So I'll I'll use it. I'll get to a town and like, uh, nope, it's no longer free. But still, it's a it's a great uh, book because it has maps about where you can find these kind of cheap campgrounds and and yeah, some 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 small cities and towns, especially in the Midwest, will uh, in the flat country, they'll they'll allow people to camp for free in their in their town parks because yeah, they you know. I won't leave you hanging because you were you were teeing me up for this, but basically yeah. um, we had a sheriff in a small town when I was through hiking that let us kind of camp in their uh, little town park, and we had a bunch of teeny, teenagers. You know, honestly, they were just curious. It was a weekend night. They were driving around. They see a bunch of people they don't know who they are in the town park. Yeah, and we had our we had our tents up. We're sitting there cooking, and you know, we, we get a bunch of who are you from fifty hundred feet away, right from the pickup truck. Yeah, and so we didn't answer. We didn't answer, and it was driving them nuts. And they just wouldn't oh. let us go. And eventually, they got really curious and came walking up. And um, it was—they were cool. They were just curious, and they were teenagers, and you know. But uh, anyway, 
that kind of gets to your power line, small town, cell tower, some of those little localized campsites. Uh, locals come out and they want to know who you are, right? Oh yeah, so, up in uh, uh, up in North Dakota, there's a little town of Buffalo that I went to to try to because I I'd, I'd read about the, their city park. Looks like you, it said you can camp there for free, but once I got there, it was like this baseball park and. I really didn't know for sure, so I I went, uh, but I went to a little cafe. It was called called I think Clem and uh, oh, it's like Clem's Corner Cafe, Clem and Hazel's Corner Cafe. That's a great little little dive. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say dive. It was actually a very nice spot. And I went there and I kind of asked about the town park, and they said, "Oh, you can camp there for sure." And you know, ten minutes later, like the the mayor comes in, and he are, he already knows who I am and what I'm what I'm about, and he uh, he also gonna lets me know like yeah, you can camp in the camp park. Um, so I I, I love the experience of small towns and just how everybody knows each other. And um, I, I uh, agree. I mean, they're they're actually the most fun to visit. And you know, usually the usually the typical sheriff and mayor in a small town is is very accepting of of strangers, right? Like as long as you're respectful and legitimate they're usually very cool yeah in in life in general there's a lot of people out there that want to be able to give you something you know they want to be able to be generous and uh and they're only waiting for somebody to kind of ask for help and uh so just by asking for help and asking for like hey is there a place i can camp around there you're you're kind of allowing other people to to have the gift of being able to be generous um so that's kind of a, I don't know, maybe a lesson about humanity I've sort of <laughs> learned over the years. So a lot of people like to be generous, and uh, you just have to kind of ask. Well, and to your point, and to expand on this, this was a little small town in Virginia, which I won't tell you where it is, but um, we, we found the principal of a high school because we wanted to get a shower. And he was very gracious. He let us come in. He let us use the showers, which was really cool. But uh, it just kind of gets to your point. Like a lot of these people in the small towns, you know, if, if you're respectful and you're uh, polite and you, um, you know, you, you just, you know, you appreciate what they have and what they're willing to give, uh, they're usually pretty generous about it, you know? Yeah. 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 But so let me shift gears because one of my, one of the things I enjoyed most about your book was your um, travels to hot springs. Um, you seem to have a lot of fun in the hot springs. Tell us more about that. We don't have a lot of hot springs in the East Coast. I know you got a lot more in the West. Um, you, you called it the pinnacle of renegade car camping. Can you <laughs> can you expand upon that? Yeah, for sure. Well, in the West, there's a lot of um, hot springs that you have to pay to go to. Um, but then there's a lot of places you call like primitive hot springs where there's there's like no amenities there, or there might, maybe it might be a pit toilet in some areas. Um, but there's such places in the middle of nowhere where you can, you know, camp right nearby and just have a nice soak in a in a pool that some people have created just out of they've just built it out of love, and they've uh, these pools just capture the water, hot water that trickles naturally out of the ground. You can have a great soak and watch the stars above you, and then kind of crawl into your tent at night, all toasty and warm. Um, so uh, there are to find these places. There are some great books that will uh, help you locate the. Locate these spots. Uh, I use a book um, from Marjorie Gersh Young. It's just Hot Springs and Hot Pools of the Northwest, and she has a companion book um, about the Southwest. And uh, you know, so that, that gives you maps and directions to some of these places. And they're not all in the book, but 
Um, but yeah, it's they provide kind of nice destinations, especially if you just need a, a place to crash for the night. Uh, they can also lead you to some great um, Renegade campsites as well. And you mentioned Soap.net is a good resource. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I, I think it's going to get much better in the future. Like right now, it doesn't really have maps. They kind of list, you can go by state and you can see a whole listing of the names of hot springs. But if you... If, if you don't know where they are, then it's a little bit hard to it's a, a campsite. The site's a little bit hard to utilize. Um, but if someone tells you about a hot spring, you can go there. You can look up the name, look up directions, and eventually, once they get those sites posted on a map, um, it'll be I think much more useful to the casual casual web browser. And uh, so, Brian, I wrote down in your book that you had a, a night at. Blaney Hot Springs, if I said that correctly. Do you want to yeah. tell about that? Wasn't that your like trail magic night? That's backcountry, correct? Oh yeah, that was such a, a relief. Um, I was. It's somewhere near the John Muir Trail, uh, out west in the Rocky Mountains, or not in the not in the Rockies, the Sierra Nevada mountain Cali. range, California. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I was uh, doing a, a hike through an area called Evolution Evolution Valley. This gorgeous area that's at high elevation, so no trees, no nothing, a, a beautiful spot. Um, and so I was doing these hikes where I, uh, but I didn't have enough warm layers. I mean, I brought sleeping bags and I brought tons of, I did brought tons of warm layers, but um, I would hike these, uh, hike up to these mountain passes and I'd be ready to kind of uh, definitely curl up and sleep for the night. But I was so high that I would freeze to death if I tried to camp out there. So I'd have to continue on for a couple more hours until I got low enough into a valley to camp for the night. Um, so I was pulling these long days, longer than I expected, and uh, um, wearing my body out completely for doing these long days. And so once I got uh, to uh, a spot on the trail where there was a, a detour to this place called Blaney Hot Springs, I took the detour. And once I got there, I had an actually extra, had an extra day to spend because I had <laughs> done longer days than I expected. And Blaney Hot Springs again, it's just a there's a, a stone pool um, in the middle of a forest, uh, a flat forest, and the water is you know it could be a little bit a little bit hotter, but it was in the middle of nowhere. It was just beautiful. In the morning, um, like all all through the night, mist would kind of. Uh, would uh, evaporate from the pool and cover the grasses around, and then they'd freeze. So every morning you had this kind of this glittering, sparkling winter wonderland scene that would last for an hour until the sun hit it and melted again. And then right next to that spring was also a a, a larger spring, a cold spring. It was a, a pool of water that was uh, groundwater fed, and so it was crystalline clear water and about maybe 15 feet deep and there was like in the ocean you'll have like kelp that will grow from the bottom all the way up to the top and in this pool there was also these uh very long very very tall grasses um and just vegetation that was growing from the bottom to the very top but you could see perfectly to the bottom and so if you just dove down and opened your eyes you were swimming through this like this underwater forest, just an experience you would never really get unless you're out in the ocean with like a scuba gear and like swimming, <laughs> swimming through the kelp forest. Awesome. Um, 
And of course, somebody had left like an inner tube there, and or, or some kind of raft. And so I was yeah, spending. Why, why, why not? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent an entire day just lounging on the raft and going to the hot springs and just just healing up, healing my body from this those series of intense days. Um, and so it was a magical twenty, actually thirty six hours. I think I spent just uh, chilling by these these springs. Yeah, do, do, I, do I remember you got some ibuprofen out of this as well? Yeah, that's the thing my body needed the most, some ibuprofen. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think I'm on the trail on the way to that hot springs. I just happened to find a Ziploc bag full of a couple of pills of ibuprofen. So everything I needed was given to me on this uh, little detour. Trail magic, the trail delivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to shift gears on you. We're going to yep. talk about gear very quickly, about how to do these kind of trips on the cheap, and then uh, close this out. So let's let's talk gear and transportation. Um, now you you traveled with Charlie. We yes. talked about we talked about Charlie in the previous podcast. You want to give a quick uh, explanation? Yep, Charlie is a Jeep Cherokee with uh, three hundred eighty thousand miles on it, and we've done all my cross country trips together. And he does great, but the first time doing a cross-country trip, uh, I did it for six months, and during that time, I tried sleeping in the back of Charlie. So we'd set up a mattress in the back, and but every day we'd have to move all the gear, like piled up into the front seats just to have space to put a mattress there. And I don't know why I did it, um, but after that trip, I never did that again. I'd always just pitch a tent, uh, uh, pitch a tent right by the Jeep. And I started, um, you know, inflating a, a big inflatable mattress. You know, you go to a big five store and you can buy a queen size mattress for 20, 25 bucks. And for me, one of the most key things about car camping is getting one of those mattresses because when you pull up to a campsite, you don't really got to worry about the ground being very flat at all. You just inflate one of those mattresses, which are about, you know, they're about like eight inches thick. And so you can... Um, use your 12-volt adapter, just inflate that thing, and then you can just put it anywhere, and it just erases all the contours of the ground. And then you, I just then I put my tent on top of that. Yeah, so, I thought that was absolutely brilliant, Brian. Like, when I read that, I, I appreciated the brilliance of that whole move. Um, what, what happened, just out of curiosity, what, what drove you to the tent strategy versus um, taking a van or a... a truck and, and creating essentially a, a, a mini RV, right? Because that would, that would be a strategy, and there's probably websites that go into that in detail. That I'm, I'm sure you considered that. What, what sent you in the tent direction? Well, I, I admire that strategy. I mean, granted, Charlie is not something you can easily maybe convert to that type of structure, but when you're in a tent, you know, you can leave the rain fly off and you've got the stars above you. And it, it, maybe it just appeals to me to, to be outdoors, and I, I think I would feel a bit confined um, sleeping with the, underneath the metal roof uh, every night. You know, I think, um, and, I, and I interviewed, and if the listeners get a chance, go back and listen to the Kungsleden interview, because uh, um, in, in Europe, it's very different than the United States, right? In Europe, you have um, a lot more urban areas. It's kind of harder to do the true renegade car camping um, yeah. in Europe that you can do in the United States and, and, and I'm for sure Canada. Um, 
So I, I think I think your point is well taken. Um, if if you're in Europe, it's probably hard harder to get away with the U.S. strategy that you kind of write about in your book, right? Yeah, we're pretty lucky here with all the public land we have in the West, for sure. Yeah. Hey, so one of the other things that was interesting to me was lighting because, um, you know, obviously you have a car battery. You can't run lights on your car all the time. Um, you, you mentioned the solar lantern, which I'm a big fan of. Do you, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, the last couple of years, uh, these, uh, uh, the company I use a lot is the company called Lucy, L-U-C-I, and they make an inflatable lantern. So it's got a solar panel on one side, and you, you just leave it out to charge, and it produces a great amount of light. Um, at nighttime, you can inflate it. So the light is going to disperse a little bit uh, wider. There's about like eight LED lights built into them. And you can, of course, get like versions that uh, are multiple colors, like they have uh, color LED lights. And they're great for backpacking, too, because they are so lightweight. Um, it's really easy to clip one onto your backpack when you're hiking. Um, so, yeah, they, they are f- absolutely fantastic. Um, but one thing I've been doing... Uh, more recently is I have one good, really good equip- piece of equipment to have with you is a jump starter kit, like in your car, oh. a little, like a battery that you can plug into an outlet, get it all charged up. And then if you, if your car dies, you just hook up the cables to your, to your car battery and uh, jump start it. But those, these chargers, they also have, you know, you can charge your cell phones off of them because they have, these days they have USB uh, connectors and, uh, for Burning Man, <laughs> while I was at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada uh, last week, I, uh, um, I I bought like a, um, a clip-on light that you usually screw a regular light bulb into, and I just bought like a nine-watt LED light, and I just you can plug that into the the jump starter because they have twelve volt adapters in the jump starter, um, and uh, I lit my tent for many many nights on the charge from that uh from that car battery jump starter so it's uh thanks to the miracle of leds uh you can get away with uh um, with using just a jump starter to light your whole light your whole campsite yeah that's 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 a great tip now you you've been doing this for 20 plus years i mean in the early years did you use coleman lanterns or um i mean what, what was your strategy uh, mainly headlamps, uh, mainly like, I guess Coleman type lanterns I used a, a little bit, but you know, it's funny, like, uh, I was just thinking today, like the regular flashlight is, um, people hey, use, it, I don't it, know, it's like, it works, it, you know, it works, it works for sure, but it's funny how like for a backpacker, um, or even a car camper, they've, uh, become a little bit like almost, uh, obsolete in a sense, yeah. um, great to have around your house for emergencies but these days with with, uh how lightweight headlamps are and like uh, led lanterns you don't see as many just regular flashlights anymore that's a good point but i'll tell you we just had hurricane irma blow through uh atlanta and you could not go to walmart and find anything Ah. the only thing you could find is the uh, little candles that uh you know you would either pray to or uh just put in your house for decoration that was about it yeah. So, but in you know where you are in California, you're not worried about hurricanes probably as much. Not as much as earthquakes. Yeah. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. 
That's a good point. So, hey, let's move on to um, what, what I believe is a, a big misconception for doing these cross-country road trips, and that is you need a lot of money, which is completely not true, right? So um, you, you want to talk about just some tips to saving money when you're doing a cross-country road trip? Yeah, sure. It's there's a there's great variance, and um, it depends on how social you want to be. So if you are somebody that has you know social needs, you want to engage people a lot more. Um, <clears throat> then you know you got to pay to go to a bar and buy drinks and uh, or go to a youth hostel and meet people there. So that that can that can definitely add up. Um, for me, I typically will spend about a thousand dollars a month when uh when traveling across the summer for the summertime. Wow, that's great. And that's a it's a lot of gas money. It's a lot of like miscellaneous expenses, occasional car repairs. Um, um, but it, that's I just buy food so I can camp at my camps, uh, cook it at, at my campsite. Um, I'm camping for free all, all the time. And you know, if I do want to meet people, I'll go on couch surfing. And sometimes uh, I don't necessarily need a place to stay for the night, but it's good to meet locals and get some information about good hikes in the area. So. That's that's couchsurfing.com, correct? Couchsurfing dot oh man, I can't remember now. It's dot org or dot com. Um dot dot com, that's it. Dot com. You know you know, one of the other tips that I like that you had in your book was um leveraging libraries. Do you want to talk about uh, not not just them for um information and, and computer use, but also Wi Fi use, right? Yeah, like uh, as a writer, I would have to every every week. I'd have to go to a library, and so I could write a weekly article. Um, but it, you know, once you're at the library, there you're also <laughs> you're sitting down in an easy chair, and you're plugging like four or five different things in. You're plugging in your camera battery, you're plugging in your your jump starter, you're plugging in your cell phone and your computer, and um, so great that you know communities invest the money into their libraries because travelers we need them. Um, it's, it's really hard to do this for for days, weeks, months at a time. Hey, but talk about restaurants and and motels. Those are probably the biggest killers of your budget. H- how do you manage around that? I mean, other than buying the renegade car camping book, <laughs> I, I I I don't use them unless. Uh, you know, if you're traveling with your significant other, that's when you you start to make different decisions about uh, going out to eat or staying in a motel. Um, when it's just you, it's it's easier to uh, to justify a little bit of discomfort in order to kind of like stretch your budget a little further. So, uh, like youth hostels are also some place you can go to to get a roof over, over your head. But if you've got, and if you're by yourself. Um, you know, you're paying 20 bucks for a bed, and it's more manageable. Like if you got two people you're traveling with, then the youth hostels don't quite make economic sense. I mean, they can give you a kitchen to cook in, but you know, if you're doubling that price, you're paying per person. You might as well get like a, a motel room. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how often do you uh, employ the youth hostel strategy? I mean, in the West, it's probably you don't need it as much because there's so much land to camp on, right? Uh, yeah, I, I used to use them a lot and just slowly kind of, well, <laughs> kind of rapidly kind of uh, dipped away from them. So I, I, I will go a couple of summers without using the youth hostel. But sometimes you, uh, <laughs> you really want a shower. You really want the real thing. And that's what youth hostels are good for. Yeah, no doubt. 
you know, there's a fair number of our listeners that are on the East Coast. How, how do you compare the renegade car camping style on the West Coast versus the East Coast? Well, on the East Coast, you can still dip into state forests. You know, there's marked state forest lands, and you can usually find uh, places to tuck away and uh, um, and maybe pitch a tent. But, uh, you know, on the East Coast, there's not as great variation of topography, and a lot of the mountaintops tend to be heavily forested. I mean, I don't know, trees grow. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of places, trees actually grow faster on the East Coast. So, uh, so views might be harder to come by, but... Uh, um, but yeah, you can't get national forests are a little bit harder to, um, harder to find, but state forests somewhat make up for that. Yeah, that's fair. So Brian, I'm going to ask you a few closing questions if you're ready. Oh yeah. Hit me up. So first off, many of our listeners only have a week or two of vacation a year where they can truly get away. They may have two weeks, but they got to spend a week with their family, whatever. Yeah. Um, if you had one week, what would you do? Uh, I, <laughs> I would, I would, yeah, I would hit up Utah and go yeah. to, yeah. I mean, there's so many oh, treasures that are there. Yeah, Arches National Park, Canyonlands, uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, Bryce Canyon. Oh, Bryce Canyon is amazing with those, uh, sh- the brilliant red of the sandstone that's there and the, the hoodoos and towers and canyons there. Um, uh, Zion National Park, you know. Oh, love it, love it. Just yeah. was, was just there. Awesome. These are great places, and they're surrounded also by BLM land. So there's like open desert land in, um, that kind of connects or runs between these areas. So it's, I'd say it's a relatively easy way to, uh, easy area to find uh, renegade, camp, renegade campsites. And the places where you're camped at can be just visually very interesting too, um, but you probably find them easily by kind of striking away from the national parks a little bit and going to some of the lesser-known areas like Kodachrome State Park or um, Goblin Valley uh, State Park. Some of these uh, uh, state lands in the areas are um, are cool places to to check out and. You're going away from the <laughs> the regular. You're going away from, away from the tourists a little bit, so you're more likely to find dirt roads and secret places to pull pull away. So I hear you because I mean Yosemite is a beautiful a beautiful national park, but oh my god, if you go in there in the summer, you better be you better be prepared for what you're walking into, right? <laughs> yes, the only uh, walk-in campsite is a place called Camp Four, and uh, we were there this spring, and people were. Uh, people were camped out like when we went there in the morning um, people were like waiting to to see if any campsites were opened and there was a, a row of 20 people in sleeping bags just sleeping outside of this little hut waiting for the hut to open so they could maybe have a chance of getting a campsite there for the day so <laughs> I took yeah you can kind of it, it was just a very interesting scene of just row after row after row of, of mummy bags and people just like curled up so tight inside them trying to stay warm. If you had two weeks, and you know, I know you're in California, but if you had two weeks, all the states you've seen, where would you spend two weeks? Oh, I would probably 
I would probably visit, you know, Yosemite is amazing, but it's also a little further away from a lot of cool spots. Um, I would dip into Yellowstone to just to see the the buffalo herds and yeah. the geysers. Awesome, awesome. The giant, uh, giant hot springs that are there. Yeah. Um, and then dip to the Tetons because the Tetons are <laughs> a mountain range that looks as if, you know how like a kid would draw a mountain range with just like sharp, very sharp Vs just up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. I mean, that mountain range looks like one of those kid drawings. It's just so sharp and so jacked and so iconic. And once you're at the Tetons, you can um, roam your way down to Colorado where things are, are um, maybe less distinctive, but there's just so many areas to hike and explore and backpack and, and just have a little bit of a, you know, as John Never would put it, a little bit of a Rocky Mountain holiday out there. <laughs> I think he called it a Rocky Mountain high. Oh, yeah, yeah, he did, he did. (laughs) You know, once again, we've come full circle because you're talking about Colorado again. You brought that up again as your favorite state. Yeah. So, uh, any chance you're moving there? Ooh, wouldn't mind it, wouldn't mind it. But uh, um, right now, I've been infatuated with Montana. That's where I've got my little house there. And uh, it still does not have heat in it, but it will eventually. And... Um, you just can't, sometimes you can't quite beat those glacially sculpted, uh, mountains that are, they'll, they'll greet you when you get close to Canada. Yeah. Another great state. We are blessed. We are definitely blessed in this country. Yeah. Well, Hey, uh, Brian, I really appreciate you, uh, being on the podcast tonight. Tell us about your website, how people could follow you. Can you, uh, help the listeners know where to find you? Sure, yeah. Um, off the Map Books is pretty much where you can find me. Uh, look for Off the Map Books on Instagram. Look for that on Facebook. Uh, Facebook's a great way to, to see current pictures and hear current stories. Um, you can also go to Off the Map Books and sign up for my newsletter to get more pictures and stories and to hear more books about, about more books when they come. And in fact, if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll receive links to uh, a couple of free books. Uh, my first book of travel adventure stories um, called Off the Map. You can uh, get there for free, and you can also get Renegade Car Camping for free uh, just by signing up. Hey, our listeners love free. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you wrote the book on free, so this is perfect. Yeah. Cheers. Hey, so I love... I loved Renegade Car Camping, a great book. It makes me want to do another cross-country adventure, Brian. i, I got to be honest with you. Th- thank you for sharing that with me, and thank you for being on the show tonight. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Absolutely. Safe travels to you and uh, to all your listeners. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show was provided by Jerris under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at N2Backpacking.com. 
That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com. <laughs>